Welcome to the Keen Atomic. I'm your host Nick, and joining me is is my returning co-host uh, Danny. Hello. Hi everyone. We 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 are back to normal sh- our normal scheduled r- programming. Well, um, hopefully, yeah. Um, hopefully, so yeah. yeah. Sorry, sorry for the um, sort of uh, time off. It was not willingly done, but I'm back now. So business as usual yay yes yes business as usual um you everyone will be happy to hear um bit of housekeeping to do quickly um as listeners if you listen to our uh, interlude episode i did uh with max maybe um we did say we were going to do an episode on nomadland and promising young woman now that episode was recorded but on some technical issue the audio <laughs> seemed to have recorded itself over the old audio from when we did our episode on bad trip and barb and star and if anybody knows any tech way to solve it that would be really helpful but it just keeps happening on on his end um so we don't really know what 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 to do but that is a lost episode but it's it's out there and hopefully one day you will hear it um or we might just have to just re-record the whole damn thing again and and just go from there but you will hear that episode one day it yeah. has been known to happen from time to time, and we have had to re-record episodes. Um, hopefully, yeah, so I'm sorry to hear that. So, yeah, hopefully everything will get sorted. Yeah, yeah, I said it was a discussion on Nomadland and, and Promising Young Woman, and it was a pretty good discussion. So, um, yeah, we'll, we'll uh, hopefully you guys will hear that soon. Um, well, obviously we'll, we'll post that up on the thing, but we are, like I said, back to our normal schedule programming. Um, before we get into that, um, what what have we what have we been watching in in the in the time that we've had away? Uh, Danny, Danny, what, what what have you been watching? So I will start by saying that I've been watching the almost entire filmography of Greta Garbo's, uh, minus the last film she ever did because it was a very terrible film and no one likes it, and I did not want to approach it because. I I would have I didn't want I didn't, I didn't want to see her in in a role that was demeaning to her character. So I've seen all the silence and I've seen all the talkies minus two faced woman because reasons. Um, we might have to do a Greta Garbo special because now I've actually finished my master's degree and I've finished my paper on Gre- Greta Garbo and it has been graded quite well. So yay. Excellent news. Excellent um, news. Yeah, so a bit of blowing my own trumpet there. Uh, but yeah, that was that was kind of what I've done for the last two months. And I've sort of treated myself at the end of this um, to binge watching some of the TV shows that Nick has suggested over the last few months. And I hadn't had time to watch them. And one such TV show, which I must say that my mom was very, very um, obsessed with, <laughs> uh, was True Detective, the first season. And I've watched it in like two or three days. The first, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Only, I mean, seven seven years late, but I mean, you got there. I know, in the end, I got I'm there really, in the end. I'm sorry. I'm it's really just, looking I'm not... forward to hearing your thoughts. Um, yeah, seven years late. Sorry, Matthew McConaughey, if you're listening. Hope you are. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, well, 
what can I say? It was just ridiculous. Uh, the writing was incredible. The acting was just mind blowing. Out of this world. Um, yeah, I loved it. Um, it was it was very very good. And um, what can I say? Matthew McConaughey deserves all the accolades. Um, but if you if you like True Detective, um, you have to watch The Mayor of Easttown. That's the uh, new Kate Winslet show. That's uh, yes. That, uh, so out, for, yeah. for this one, for this one, thankfully, I was not too seven years too late because, um, you know, it's a woman, so I have to, I have to do it. I have to watch it. Um, yay! Yes, and um, it was just brilliant. Um, if I might say, slightly better than True Detective. Ooh, which that's is which is which is saying a lot. I know, but it's just. I loved it. I loved it very, very much. And Kate Wester's performance was was again brilliant. And she, I don't yeah, know if it, she's it, ever it's made. All, it's on my she's, list. So. She's not. She, I don't think. Looking back, I don't think she's ever had a bad performance. Um, I, no, don't, I don't think she has. No, it's just one of those things, isn't it? Isn't it? She, I mean, all the projects she cho- chooses are very, very well carefully chosen, and she, she's like the Meryl Streep of the next generation. I don't know. Maybe. I do think Maybe. that she's very good. Yeah, no, she is she is she's an extraordinary actress. Uh, always has been and I think you're right. I don't think she's ever had like a, a role where you look back and you go, "Oh, yeesh," you know, but I I I think she's been excellent everything I've seen her in. Yeah. Um so yeah, I I, I it is on my list. Mary Vistan is on my list. Um and I'm hoping to get to watch it. Uh, yeah. Um, either this week or next week. So um, hopefully by the time we record our next episode, I would have seen it and uh, I can report back to you. Yeah, I was just because I was at home for the last two months. Um, I had to, I had took advantage of my my family's HBO Go uh, account, so I was watching everything that was on on there, and that's what that's what made me watch True Detective and Mirror of Easttown. Can I ask if you're going to, if you're, I mean, you, you have heard, because I, you know, you, you, um, I, I did say, but are you going to carry on with the True Detective? Are you going to go to the um, season two and season three? I don't know. I was, I, I, I read some rather less complimenting things about the second, third season. So I don't know. Should I bother with it? What do you think? So I I'm I'm I I kind of stand up for season two in that I think everybody was riding hard, really high on the coattails of season one and thinking you know that you can't beat it and I don't think you can but I think what season two does is is different and I think it deserves recognition for that I think because um, Vince Vaughn is in it and I think he gives a very very good performance um something we've not seen him do before. Uh, especially at that point when season two came out. And then season three, which was obviously the most recent season, I think was a couple of years ago now that came out. Mahershala Ali was uh, absolutely stellar. Um, I really like so... him. I really do. I, I really like him. I think he was yeah, the so best. I... He was yeah. the best thing about Moonlight. Um, was it Moonlight? It was Moonlight. Yeah, it? Moonlight. Um, which I wasn't a bit, I didn't like it, um, the film, but his performance in that film was brilliant. Yeah, so I mean, I would, I would say watch season two. I think, I think, because it, it's it rather than it following a narrative thread, it follows a, a, a like a thematic um, like similarity. 
Um, you have uh, Rachel McAdams is really, really good, I think. Um, Vince Vaughn is really good in it. Colin Farrell You're is Colin Farrell. You, um... Um, okay, yeah. Uh, Vince Vaughn, Rachel McAdams, you're not selling it, but Colin Farrell, yeah, okay. Yeah, so uh, if, you, if you're if you up for some Colin Farrell, I definitely, Always. definitely give Always. it a watch. And then, um, yeah, season three, you get Mahesha Ali just killing it. So, um, yeah. I I think I think it's definitely worth a watch. At least then you've you've got an opinion. You can kind of look at the series as a whole, um, and 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 especially like looking back on season one. Now knowing how season two and season three are, I you know I can look back and kind of, I wouldn't say appreciate season one more, but kind of identify that it was a a real flash in the pan moment, as it were. But um, so I'm hoping I'm hoping you give it a shot because you never know you might find something in it. You know I'm always one to say you know give it a chance and see what you never know really. Yeah, I will. Um, so so just true. I mean, True Detective, Mayor of East Town. Was there any other recommendations? Oh, you got the work of Greta Garbo as well. Is there anything else or? Um, what else? Well, since I've been back to uh to, to London, I've I've sort of been self-isolating and I'm still self-isolating so I've been watching re-watching some of our favorite tv shows of all time which I will not say what they are um but I've I've discovered a new one uh which is Bridgerton I don't know if you've seen it or heard of it I haven't no no um I'm kind of because I was I was rereading some some all my favorite books and I binged on Pride and Prejudice there we go and uh, I wanted to watch something that was part of the the Regency era uh, Britain, so I went back, and um, and Bridgerton was a um, suggestion on Netflix, so that's kind of what I watched. But I really want to see The Woman in the Window, and I might watch it tonight. It's on Netflix. Is that the and... Amy Adams one? Yes, yes, and I love Amy Adams. I think she's brilliant absolutely brilliant um and i really want to see this film I wasn't started... she in a wasn't she in a film called the girl in the on the train or something isn't that like the same no, kind of thing no 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 am i thinking no. of someone else that's emily blunt no emily blunt was on the girl on the train sorry <laughs> i'm getting i'm getting two two actresses brunette actresses confused i, I apologize <laughs> um emmy adams is not brunette she's more blonde redhead oh i'm colorblind so oh you know. okay fair enough <laughs> wow okay uh but yeah i want to i really want to see that and i've actually uh kind of in preparation for for this episode which is kind of leading on to what we're going to be discussing on tonight um i've re-watched some of my favorite frederick marsh films the Desperate Hours and um, Merrily We Go to Hell, which has just been released uh, on Criterion Blu-ray. So um, it's a really good one for the collection, I, I think. Yeah, Merrily We okay. Go to Hell. Definitely recommend it. It's a 1932 okay. pre-code film. Brilliant. Well, I've literally just written it on my whiteboard. So um, I will we'll, we'll keep on. We'll, we'll, yeah. Yeah, we'll see what we can do. Yeah. Cool. Shall we? So um, yeah. I mean, I was gonna. Oh yes. My my recent my recent been watched is is a bit um. I think I think the best word to describe it is bipolar. 
um, oh, you know, I, I, I think I, I've I mentioned I'm probably mentioned this on the interlude podcast, but I, I'll mention it to Danny here as well. Um, so the last few weeks, you know, I've been watching, um, trying to catch up on you know some Hollywood films and like the 2021 releases. So you know, you got Army of Dead, Mortal Kombat. Um, you know, we we also did Nomadland and and um, uh, Promising Young Woman. Um, and, and, and for some, some reason I thought it would be a good idea to watch all the Saw films. Uh, cause I had the never Saw. seen them before. Yeah. Oh, I've, I think I've yeah. only seen the first two after the second one. I was just like, that's enough. Yeah. So the, there are, there are, I mean, oh, how many have we got? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. So there are nine out at the moment, including the recent one. And the oh, only reason dear. why I decided to watch them through is because, Spiral, I heard about this in the new one, and it was like Chris Rock doing a Saw movie. And I was like, what is that going to look like? Chris Rock? You know, yeah, Chris Rock apparently wow. did, you know, he, he came up with what? The... Exactly. How? That's what I mean. Like, it's like, it's like you're hearing a name associated with another thing, and it doesn't make any logical sense as to why these things exist together. So I was really curious um, and I had a my my friend uh, my friend John Ross Galloway friend of the pod he um, he highly recommended I I give the uh, the last film the most recent one called Jigsaw a watch and he said just watch the first one and watch Jigsaw and then another friend of me was like a friend of mine was like oh watch Saw six that's legit really good and um, so I thought all right screw it I'm just gonna watch them through and see what it, you know because I had this assumption that I had this assumption it was just you know torture porn for the sake of it you know like just <laughs> cutting people up and, and seeing and just watching that happen but the series does something very very interesting narratively and i read about this in, in, a, in an article on my website which i'm going to link to in the show notes um about how it, it's kind of like an extended csi episode or season of csi in that the series just takes on this bizarre narrative thread and continues it on in convoluted ways and it gets more and more interesting and weird as you go along. And the gore and the, you know, the torture aspect of things almost becomes, as it just becomes like a a, a side note. You know, I, I don't really take interest in it anymore. I don't, I'm not watching the Saw films, you know, to watch, see how these people die. No, I'm really interested to know where the narrative is going to go. And that kind of really shocked me because... You know, mm. the horror film, horror film franchise, you know, series films, you're thinking like Halloween or Friday the 13th or Nightmare on Elm Street, you know, they don't have a continuing narrative thread. They just do their own thing and they're either good or they're terrible or they're extremely terrible. Um, and Saw just, just shocked me in that way. Um, so I, I haven't got around to watching Spiral yet. Um, I, I Hopefully I'll watch it by the time we record next week and I can report back, but... Yeah, Chris Rock Saw movie. What the hell is that going to look like? Um, and this is where the, really the tonal shift comes in because. It. Sorry. <laughs> I just so so about after... yeah. It's just very very low on my on my to watch list at the moment. Yeah, um, no, I I get it. I'm not gonna be. I'm not gonna say to you watch the series. I'm 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 not gonna do. You know, if 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 I if I had if I had a say in in saying to you watch this series of of eight or nine films, I'm gonna turn around and say watch the Fast and Furious films. I'm not gonna say watch the Saw franchise. I'm not um, gonna do that either. So, sorry. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. <laughs> um, but the, this is what kind of where the, the 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 tonal shift comes in. About a few days later, I was kind of I had a day off from work, and I was I I needed to watch something that was a bit 
kind of intellectually stimulating, something I hadn't seen before. So I decided to watch the Three Colors trilogy um, by, I can't even pronounce, can you pronounce Christ- his name? Christoph Koslowski. There we go. Um, by Krasowski and he that trilogy wow <laughs> I know wow I don't know I, I don't understand, I don't I don't know how you've not seen it before uh, because we watched it on on our a film course um, back in the day it was yeah brilliant brilliant and we I think uh, the uh, Decalogue two films from the Decalogue I think it was a short story about killing and a short story about love and the double life of Veronique. Um, I can't really remember what. I think it was in film philosophy or something like that. I can't remember what module we were on that we studied his work. It's brilliant. He is brilliant. Brilliant. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I, I made it known in, when we did um, before sunrise that I was a big fan of Julie Delpy, um, and it was like seeing her in three colors. Why I was, you know. I was so happy um, and she gives a totally different performance from what I expect from her. And then Juliet Binoche in, in Free Colors Blue is, is utterly phenomenal. Um, and then Free Colors Red um, is, uh, I'm just looking up her name, Irene Jacob. And she's, yeah again, just utterly Who played the, um, I'm trying to remember the name of the um, judge or like the, the old man. In which red. one? Uh, in which one? Three colors in white. Red, I think it was. Oh yeah, in in red, yeah. Um, it was. Uh... Oh, Jean Louis Trintignant. Jean Louis Trintignant, yeah. who is one of my favorite actors. If you've seen, he was, he was a gorgeous young man in, um, um, and God created women with Brigitte Bardot. You definitely have to see that. You've got Jean Louis Trintignant when he was like twenty five. And he's gorgeous, and he's so—I mean—he plays really well with um, Brigitte Bardot, and he's also in—I uh, think *Amour* by. Yeah, Martin I'm, I'm, look, I'm looking up his uh, filmography. He's in *The Conformist* yeah. as well. I've not seen that one. Um, uh, Z has been popping up on my um, on my list in terms of uh, university films I need to be watching. So. Okay, um, I was definitely going to write. He's down. a very good French actor. Brilliant, brilliant. Yeah, he um, was excellent in Three Colors Red. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I was, I, I thought you might have been him, but I wasn't sure. Um, so I've seen Red a long time ago, so I need to rewatch them. Yeah, so um, yeah, it was a bit of a bit of a tonal shift going from the Saw movies to that, and then because <laughs> um, obviously you know, I, as as listeners probably may know, I'm doing my master's still, you know, I'm doing part time, so it's across two years, and I'm thinking about what I'm going to do for my dissertation uh, next year. And uh, if if you remember, I did my dissertation on BA level on Michael Bay and this Transformers films and going along the same lines in terms of the kind of insane person I am. I'm thinking of doing something with uh, the work of Paul W.S. Anderson, not Paul Thomas Anderson, which would be the, you know, the, the logical way to do it. No, Paul W.S. Anderson, director of such masterpieces uh, in quotation marks when they're really not very, very good as uh, the Mortal Kombat film that came out in 1995, Event Horizon, Alien vs. Predator. Uh, he did four Resident Evil films. He did the Death Race remake. He did an adaptation of Three Musketeers, which I have seen, and it is shockingly shit. Um, and the and reason for this film... is? Sorry? 
What what would be the reason behind you working so hard at writing about this person? <laughs> because um because when I discovered when I was watching Michael Bay is that he they he had a very very distinct style and it became very very I wouldn't say easy to write about it but there was something to write about it um that I found interesting and because I had no kind of affinity for the director i you know like if you know, i couldn't do my dissertation on spielberg for example or john carpenter but with michael bay it was like okay you know i have no affinity for this this director i have no a- attachment to it so it was very very easy to be critical paul ws anderson is a, is along those same lines as well despite the fact that i really like event horizon as a film his other films are really really bad but there is something very, very unique about him as a director and a way he shoots action in particular. Um, and it's that I kind of want to focus on because, you know, uh, my interests lie in like blockbuster filmmaking and, um, you know, that kind of that kind of thing. And action in these kind of movies, it's it there's there's just something about it. There's just something there. So um, we're, we're going to see how that goes. I've I've got other ideas in terms of what I'm going to end up doing my dissertation on, but at the, at the moment, doing something on Paul Thomas Anderson is a bit of a strong contender, and I feel sorry for my dissertation supervisor. Um, so yeah. <laughs> Um, but I feel sorry for Danny as well because she's going to end up, end, end up listening to me talking about Paul Davis Anderson. So, sorry, what you were saying? I, I, I said I'm zoned out. <laughs> you tuned out a minute, yeah. You you could just you could just pretend I'm talking about Paul Thomas Anderson and talk about There Will Be Blood instead of Resident Listen, Evil. if I I I chose to write about Greta Garbo regardless of how well known she is and how little there is left to say about her. And I found a niche in her career and I found a research question. So I'm sure you can, if you really want to, to write about somebody, like if you want to write about Steven Spielberg, you can write about Steven Spielberg. You can find something to say about him. There's still a lot to say, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, I'm possibly you're right. Possibly you're right. Um, you you anyway, don't have that's... to torture yourself unless you want to. <laughs> Well, you know, it's it, it's not it's it, it got to make it hard for yourself, haven't you? You got to challenge yourself in these things, you know. No, I didn't. I, maybe, maybe, maybe. I um, just I so just want to write about what I'm passionate about, not to, not to torture myself. Not to torture, yeah, that's kind of what I do. I just watch films just to torture myself. That's pre- that's pretty much my punishment. When uh, when with with Jigsaw, he'll sit me in front of uh, he'll sit me in front of a. Um, uh, what's his What's his name? He did those melodramatic films in like the fifties and sixties. What's his name? Oh, what was it? Uh, all that Douglas heaven allows. He did all that heaven. Yeah, yeah. So Jigsaw will sit Doug- in front of a Douglas Sirk film. He says, "Watch this Douglas Sirk film, or have or have a bomb explode in your in your brain or something." And I would choose the latter. <laughs> um, so, oh yeah. come on! He wasn't out that bad. Anyway, should we should we move Poor on Douglas to? Um, Yes, we Should shall. We move on to our uh, our our dedicated um our, our dedicated programming for today. So, Danny, do you want to introduce us to our first film? Sure. So, our theme today, I think it'd be fair to say, is around war and how war is portrayed in film and how war is sort of portrayed negatively. All the, all the negative sentiments about war, all the negative aspects about the war. I think so the yeah first... but not but not on like yeah not on like um like looking at battles or anything not like no. we're doing big parades but we're looking at like away from the the front as it were so to speak um yes. so the first 
film is 19, is 1946, uh, The Best Years of Our Lives, directed by William Wyler. And here's a quick synopsis. Three World War II veterans returned home to small town America to discover that they and their families have been irreparably changed. So, um, Nick, this is the first time you've seen this film. What did you think of it? I don't really know where to start. Um, so, okay, I was, I was really kind of blown away by the, I don't say the gentleness of the film. I think the film has a very, very compassionate feel to it, and I, I think it it doesn't. It's a work that doesn't talk down to the audience or um, overly melodramatize like what is happening to our three leads. Um, it doesn't. It didn't have that overly sentimental quality that I don't say I was expecting but I was you know I was conscious of it from seeing I don't know other kinds of works um off the top of my head I can't think of any but <laughs> yeah um so with the direction I was gonna start with the direction from William Wyler now um as per you know my usual experiences on this podcast you know when when he's a name I recognize but I have little knowledge of uh <laughs> Um, when I looked at his filmography, it kind of revealed that I had actually, in fact, seen Roman Holiday with Gregory Peck and Audrey Hepburn and uh, Ben-Hur, because, you know, everybody's seen Ben-Hur. Um, the former of which I viewed um, at uni, and it was kind of with the whole idea of star personas in mind and not really the direction. So that was kind of, that's only my experience with Roman Holiday, is I wasn't viewing it as a William Wyler film, I was viewing it as a film starring Audrey Hepburn. And then again, the latter of the film is a film I think I've seen once when I was like 13 and I kind of have little recollection of it except, you know, the chariot stuff that goes on. Yeah. Um, here uh, in, in Best Years of Allies, I found the direction to be very, very solid and very, very restrained. Um, this wasn't the film that to do, you know, grand showy set pieces or anything, you know, overly melodramatic because that wasn't the point of the film. I think there are points in the film where there are shots that were very, very inventive. Um, one of the ones I that went back uh, that I actually looked back on after I finished watching the film, and I watched it in without the sound, so I can concentrate on the camera move, was um, the scene in which Peggy and Marie are in the ladies' bathroom. Um, that scene, you have the camera positions itself in a way that kind of. Yeah. it's all done in one shot and it's framed and it moves the camera moves and you get different angles of different shots of our two actresses and their performance and it's it's a, it's incredible it's really really great now i was thinking about it and um you you kind of showed your hand a little bit because you when you told me about this one the other week when you reminded me you were like, I can't wait to see what Greg Toland does. And I I, oh, I knew I the name. <laughs> and I knew the name. And um, mm. yeah, so Greg Greg Toland, if, if, of course, if people don't know, he was the cinematographer that did that film about the guy who, who lost his sleigh. Um, <laughs> now, so I think... And you spoiled that... it for everyone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, because no, nobody's seen that, especially if you listen to this podcast. Um, now, <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, because this is the only time, this is the only time we've ever spoken about that film and that actor on the, or that director on this podcast. <laughs> hey, I love Orson. Um, <laughs> yes, yes. Um, so yeah, no, I, I feel that that 
shot and that setup is him rather than Wyler. And again, I feel there's an example later on where we see Fred in the broken bomber, uh, kind of sat in the, on the in the nose, and he's yeah. looking out, and the camera is facing his back. There is a slow tracking forward, and it goes still, and then we get an outside shot uh, of him, and it's the focus is out of focus, and. I watched it again. It was the other scene I watched after I I watched the film. I rewatched it without the sound because I wanted to get take in what was going on with the camera and what was going on with the framing. And again, I feel that this is another moment where we felt the DNA of Greg Toland kind of coming through. Um. So yeah, I thought like I said, you know, with that, you know, the the cinematography in sections in parts when when I felt there was something it was really really impressive. Um, and I feel that, that that was more Greg Tolan than William Wyler. I could be wrong. I probably am, but that's kind um, of how it feels. Obviously, knowing Greg Tolan's more, you know, from from Citizen Kane. So, what were you gonna say? I was going to say that it might be one, or it might be the other, or it might be just a collaborative effort on the part of both um, a, yeah. a director, a cinematographer. I was going to say that uh, Greg Tolan and William Wyler has have previously collaborated um in let me check Wuthering Heights which was the only Oscar that Greg Tolan won for cinematography oh the only Oscar that Greg Tolan won period um and I think they they also worked on one of the films that I really want to have on the podcast um it's the the little foxes and I will talk about uh, yeah, I would love to have that on the podcast. Um, and I do think that the the uh, it's it's very hard to say what what belongs to whom. And I was watching, I was rewatching the film last night, and I was thinking about exactly what who made what decision on set. And I I do think it it ends up being a collaborative effort. And yeah. I do think, and Greg Tolan is it was an was an artist, and I I do think that he he has his particular shots that he they're quite easy to sort of identify, but I don't know maybe they've borrowed from each other, but or maybe just Wilder sort of trusted him to to pick the shot. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's um, where great collaborations come from because if they trust each other, they they just make great work together. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and if you can work with Orson Welles and <laughs> go on Appar- back, you, you apparently, know, you know. um, speaking of, <laughs> um, <laughs> if you if you since you, since we're on the subject, since um, we're here, <laughs> I don't know if you knew this, but apparently Greg Toland offered to work with Orson because he wanted to work with with someone who didn't know anything about making movies. Oh, okay. So Greg Toland actually went. I. The only way I can learn something new is by working with someone who doesn't know anything. That's that's a pretty good way. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty good. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. what a film to do it on. Yeah, I know, I know. But um, and many people. I mean, there's been there's been you know a lot of arguments and a lot of discussion about who gets the credit for how great Susan came came to 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 be, and Arson Wallace is. And I think we discussed this when we discuss Mank and how how David Fincher uh, went to say that Orson Welles was, was very arrogant and he didn't he should have owed more to Greg Tolan than 
what he did. But I, I do feel that David Fincher didn't do his his homework on this because Orson Welles, in all the interviews that he he did about Citizen Kane, he hailed Greg Chillon as being the man that was behind the, the film. He 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 said that if he hadn't been for Greg Chillon, the film would have been would have been shit. So yeah, I do think that Greg that Orson Welles knew how how how, how strong um, and how how good Greg Chillon was on that film. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I think it. I think it. Sh- I think it shows. I think it both in, in Citizen Kane and in this, and um, I look forward to you know if if we are doing discuss discussing the Little Foxes and any other work films that he's worked on, I do look forward to kind of kind of dissecting his work a little bit more. Yeah. Um. So I uh, we'll move on move on away from that and actually <laughs> go on to the performances. Um. So all the actors were, or I mean, just. Were, I mean, very, very good is an understatement. They were <laughs> astonishing. Now, and I, I'm going to give particular note to two in particular, uh, Theresa Wright and Harold Russell. So I spent a good while trying to work out where I recognised Theresa Wright from. And? And it took me about 15 minutes because I refused to go online and look this up. Okay. It took me about 15 minutes after the film had finished, and it, of course, was that she was the lead in Hitchcock's Shadow of a Doubt. I knew it! My, I knew it! <laughs> which is my second favourite Hitchcock film I knew that you, you, Window. You should have recognised her straight yeah, away. Yeah, well, it took, you know, it took me a while. It took me a while, and... and yeah, I mean, she was excellent in Shadow. Like I said, there's a reason why I love Shadow of the Doubt, and she is one of those reasons. And um, she is amazing in this. There, the I think you know what I said about the film about there's a compassionate way the film shows these these themes, and it's got a lot of gentleness to it. It doesn't. It's not overly melodramatic. It's not dramatizing anything. She is perfectly encapsulating the tone of the film in her performance. Yeah. Um, just incredible. And the other was Harold Russell. Um, and his performance on the other hand was was something very very special. There was a rawness to him, a genuine quality. And from what I can assume, although I kind of suspect you're going actually going to have information on him, yeah. um, this was a more a, a, a most genuine performance of I've ever seen one. Yes. And I'm I'm. So uh, before I, before you jump in, um, yeah, it's so yeah. It was it was the perform- the performances. This wouldn't have worked as a three hour film on the direction, the cinematography alone. You needed something in it, and the themes in that you know yes does a lot of the heavy lifting, but it wouldn't have worked without without the actors involved. Um, perfectly cast, I think, kind of covers it. I think. Um, uh, the guy that plays uh, Fred, Dana Andrews, he, I, there's something really quite um, classical, classically Hollywood handsome about him. Yeah. Um, but he, there's, 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 there's a vulnerability behind him. Um, I thought Frederick March, his kind of drunken stupor wasn't as uh, comedic as it could have been. And I think that's a very, very fine line to go. And I think he did a very, very good job. Um, Myrna Loy. I mean, um, you've you've you talked a lot about her in the past, um, and I thought she was she was excellent. I think you know you you noticed her presence, as it were. She's you know, a she's goddess. Always, yeah, she's always doing stuff in the back, even when she's not sent a frame. She is doing things. 
um the dinner scene in particular where where he's given that speech yeah and even though the cameras was focusing on him and he's because he's the focus of attention we if you're looking at Myrna Loy which I kind of ended up doing she's doing little things with her facial face and her 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 movements and her eyes and everything that is just so it's, it's just brilliant uh, it's just brilliant um the the plot is like I said, if ever was one, I think you're gonna kind of just kind of just shows this, this this these lives and the adjustments the three leads have to undertake, and I think it's very very delicately done. Um, the ending itself, I mean, was was predictable, but of course, in the film is from 1946, and you kind of have to follow the standard Hollywood narrative. You couldn't really have the darkness creeping in any further, um, especially in Hollywood. I mean, at least not until not until Vietnam, anyway. Um, <laughs> so. Overall, yes, this was this was absolutely a phenomenal film. And as a three-hour film, um, a certain Hollywood director nowadays can take notes. This is how to pace one, and this is what a three-hour film should feel like. It should feel like it's a three-hour film, but in actual fact, it felt like ninety minutes, not a three and a half-hour film that takes about seven eight hours. So <laughs> yeah, um, I, I I applaud on the on the selection on this one. So yeah, okay. I'm glad. Um, any other notes? No, I, I, like I said, I, I, I'm, yeah, I'm, I, yeah, I, I'm, I'm sure that you know when we talk about the next film, we'll, we'll, we'll there's going to be some comparisons and what have you. So we'll, yeah. we'll get that. We'll cross that bridge when we come to it. Okay. Um, what can I say? This is, I think, in terms of classic Hollywood, this is as good as it gets. Honestly, um, you've, you've sort of hit it or like ticked all the boxes the plot was brilliant and not too soapy and not too dramatic and not too emotional and yeah Teresa Wright what an actress I think she should be well more well recognized than 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 um some other actress I, I think she should should get more recognition because uh, I don't, I don't think many people know about her, but I, I do think she was great. And if we get to talk about the little foxes, um, you'll get to see her there as well. And she plays against Betty Davis, so that's something. Okay, to that's 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 <laughs> definitely going on the list. Then. I'm sorry. So that's you, something to look forward to. <laughs> I think I do think that Little Foxes is my favorite Betty Davis role. You've told me this in the past, so yeah, I do we're, think we're, we're so. Def- I've it's written just... it down. This is this is a definite now. Okay. <laughs> this is no um, this is no longer penciled in. This is in permanent ink. Okay. Um, Laminated and everything. Yes. Um but yeah, I, I think the performances was great were great. I I I've rewatched the film last night and I'm not a big fan of Dan Andrews, but I do think he, he shows a vulnerability in it that is just perfect for, for the role. And his interaction with Virginia Mayo playing the wife um it's just exactly uh, equal parts frustration and and dis- disillusionment um and virginia mayo i think she was great like the sexy blonde bombshell that's quite um you know a bit of a gold digger and just fancying him for the uniform um and that scene that you've mentioned i think that is brilliantly showcasing exactly what she's like because she just goes there and she just starts to put the makeup on talking nonchalantly about anything and not realizing that she's such a shallow person um and sort of being sort of set against uh, Teresa uh, Wright and how gorgeously you know demure and and 
heartfelt she is. Um, I'm not sure if I agree with you in terms of performances when it comes to a Frederick March. You said that he's you didn't like his drunk acting. No, no, I said I did. I said it could have quite easily gone into comedic, and yeah, he did a very, very I, good I, job in not I doing just, that. I do think that he's. I I've rarely seen more convincing drunks, uh, especially in the pre-method era. Um, because sometimes they do, they do tend to get very comedic, but he was brilliant, and I've I've been a fan of Frederick Marches for for a while, and and I do think that he gets better with age. Um, he he won the first Oscar for um, Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde in nineteen thirty two. And he was very good in it, but he was very young there. So I do think that now, seeing him now with, you know, some wrinkles and some some character on his face, um, I really like him like that in in this film. I think he's he's just so much better. And he won he won the Oscar for this role. Um, the film actually won seven Oscars in, in competition and two honorary ones. Um, including Best Picture, Best Leading Actor, Best Supporting Actor. Alas, no acting accolades for Myrna Loy um, for this or any film that she was in. And I, I, I do think she deserved at least a nomination um, or the, for this or Thin Man or um, any of the films that she was in because she's always brilliant. And the sub snubbing alone should invalidate the Academy Awards and no more shall we be said on the subject. Except that... Um, what was his name? Harold Russell. I think he was he was very good and he actually won two Oscars for his performance. Oh wow. He won he won the best supporting actor Oscar and he was given a an honorary Oscar because they thought that um so a quote for a quote for bringing hope and courage to the fellow veterans through his appearance. And and then they was because they didn't think he had a shot at winning the competitive Oscar, so they gave him an honorary one, but later that night he won the supporting actor. And you were right, Harold Russell was actually a war veteran and he was disabled and um, it was it was nothing short of outstanding because he was not really an actor, he was, he was a real person with real problems. And in fact, director William Waller was furious when he learned that producer Samuel Goldwyn had sent Harold Russell for acting lessons because he preferred Russell's not to be so like his untrained acting, natural acting to something that was sort of prepared and sort of polished. And I don't know if you notice in the end when he says his vows at the wedding, um, he fumbles some of the the words. Yes, he did. Yeah. Uh, and that was that was not deliberate. That was not that was a mistake. But William Waller let it in because he liked that he was just you know nervous and. As as nervous men would be nervous on their wedding day, right? So it just felt more natural to let it, to leave that in. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, no, it it really did, yeah. Yeah, so yeah, um, and a few, just a few things about William Wilder. Well, William Wilder, Billy Wilder. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, well, I was going to say that William Wilder is, I think, for me, he's one of my favorite sort of classical Hollywood directors up there with Billy Wilder. And um, he served as a major in the army force during World War II. Um, and this is basically he incorporated his war wartime experiences in the film. 
um, and he was actually shooting footage for documentary films um, during during the the war. He flew um, in in combat over Germany, but he was not dropping bombs like Fred Derry. Um, and his hearing was permanently permanently damaged when um, an anti aircraft shell exploded exploded near his plane. Um, and one thing that I, my favorite scene of the whole movie is the um, the reunion between Fred, Frederick Martyrs Al and Myrna Lois Millie. Um, and he basically modeled that reunion on on his own homecoming with with his wife at the time. I gotta um, say, I I did I, I I do have an admission to make. I did tear up at that. I know, um, right? You can't, you can't, you can't be human and not you, tear up at that. It just makes yeah. me cry every time. Because you see her just being like, you know, who's at the door? And then she realizes who's at the door and just stops doing whatever she was doing. And you just kind of go, yeah. oh, my God. And I, I really loved the story about how they kind of, they can't really pick up what they left off, not straight off the bat. And you see that perfectly with Al because he's like, I don't want to go back to the bank. And he's not... You know, in the first night, he's quite nervous about being at home with a wife and he wants to go get drunk because he just can't be back there. But, you know, thankfully, he just slips back into the marital bliss quite easily enough because, you know. Um, but I do think I I love the dynamic between Freddie Marsh and Manaloy And, yeah, that reunion scene always has me in tears. Um yeah, I think I do, I, I do. I'm looking forward to watching to to us discussing uh, more of of William Wyler and, and and his films. I I think I've mentioned this before, but I think Desperate Hour, the the Desperate Hours are is one of my favorite Wyler films, and Frederick Marsh is in it as well. And there's so much character in his face, and you so if you want to see like a trajectory of his acting career, you watch something that's in like early thirties when he's young and and gorgeous, like Designed for Living or Duck Jekyll and Mr Hyde, and then you see him in this where he's older and he's got bit lines on his face, and you see how good he's acting, and then you see him in 1955 in The Desperate Hours, and that is brilliant brilliant acting and again he's slightly a bit older and guess who he plays against not googling oh god all right so what year are we talking what year 1955 um henry fonda no no um okay yes (laughs) whoa okay what a guess that was a good guess. That was a very good guess. Yeah. Bogart. Is it, is this is this another one for for is this another one for the pod, you think? Um I don't know. We'll have to see what we can pair it with because it's just maybe What's it about? Um it's about so Bogart is a uh, I think he's escaped from prison or something. And he's got two guys in tow, so he's like his two henchmen and he takes refuge in this house that belongs to um um, Frederick March and his family. So he takes the family host- hostage while he tries to sort of make up a pl- uh, escape plan. Oh, okay. Um, I got one. I got one. Because uh, uh, it gives me an have... excuse to talk. We no, I got it. I got do... it. I got it straight off. I got it straight off the bat because it gives me an excuse to talk about him again. Uh, John Carpenter's uh, assault, assault of Precinct Thirteen. 
Okay, fine. I don't think I've I seen think it. That, uh, hostages and criminals. Yes. Yeah. Let's do that. Okay. Okay. You're, hear- you're hearing it now on the pod. Yeah. Listeners. So it's just this is what happened. This is what we're discussing. This is what we. This, this is, is how, this is this how exactly how things work. Yeah. This is how these <laughs> things come about. So yeah. So that's okay. Um, having said that, I think I think we should conclude our talk about uh, the best years of our lives. Unless you have anything else to add. Um. I um, have. A... No, I'm all good. Um. I do have a tiny, tiny uh, note to end with. That is quite a positive note. I did a bit of research, and um, as we know, Harold Russell was was um, a disabled war veteran. But to end on a high note, he did marry his high school sweetheart. Oh, that's good. That's that's nice. yeah. And Regina Mayer was uh, was at the wedding, so she was kind of. Um, stood for him. What's the Word? Yeah. Yeah, she stood for him at the wedding. Okay. Um I'm so, glad you liked it. Yeah. Um okay, so alright, this this alright, this is the next one was making me nervous. Um so <laughs> we are going on to uh MASH uh from nineteen seventy, directed by Robert Altman. This is of course our second Robert Altman film of the podcast. We also did um Miss uh Mr. McCabe and Mrs. Miller. Um this one is uh, is it Mash, um, starring Donald Sutherland, Elliot Gould, Tom Skerritt, uh, Robert Duvall. Um, you know, there's a whole list of ensemble actors as it is a Robert Altman film. Um, so a brief synopsis: the staff of a Korean War field hospital use humor and hijinks to keep their sanity in the face of the horror of war. So, Danny, um, the theme song is Suicide is Painless. Did you find the viewing painless, or did you find it uh, with yourself more leaning towards the former? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, um, what does MASH stand for? I did not look it up, so I'm thinking you will have the answer. I should have the answer. (laughs) This is something I should have the answer to. Um, I actually don't know. Okay. What? Mobile Mobile Army Surgical Hospital. Oh, okay. Which I thought it sense. might be something of yeah, it makes sense. First of all, uh I have to say that some of the jokes haven't aged well at all. <laughs> yeah. Um yeah, I mean, I would love to have someone making me martinis every day. But that was a bit cringy. Uh given who was making the martinis. So I thought that was a bit um, I don't know, not politically correct and not correct at all. And I don't know what Altman. What yeah. I, I I was trying to think of a way to to excuse Altman for his portrayal of women, and I thought that maybe he doesn't understand them, so he has to lampoon them, um, or maybe he just is scared, as most men are, or so I've heard. Um, I'm terrified. Just scared of women in general. Um, maybe that's why they just lash out and and make jokes. So just to feel less threatened. I don't know. Um, I just tried to sort of take that away and not think about it. Um, I did really enjoy it. Oh, thank God for that. (laughs) (laughs) I I was trying to sort of, you know, wait as long as I could before saying it. I did really, really enjoy it. Um, (laughs) I, I don't know. It was just really silly. Really, really silly, um, and really, really funny. Um, I, I don't know. When it comes to Alman work, his general style is is quite 
entrancing, I think. It's just, I find that the way he works and the chaotic look of the films is quite fascinating because the characters are real and they're not, you know, they're not character. They're just as real as they come. And I enjoyed McCabe and Mrs. Miller. And this, it, it felt a bit less stylish version of Monty Python, I think. Um, there were quite quite a few scene, scenes that made me laugh out loud. There's no narrative per se. There's just a few, you know, skits and here and there. Um, it's just I I really enjoyed the um, sort of signage um, with like officers' latrine everywhere, which is which I thought it was funny, and all these sort of uh, PA announcements were ridiculous. Um. What Elliot Gould was, I've never seen him like this, and I love him now. I don't know. I just think he was brilliant in this. Um, the, I think there were quite a few scenes that yeah made me laugh out loud. The, the suicide dinner, I laughed for several minutes. The Last Supper. I just could not believe it. <laughs> And they stop for a second and he just you just stare at it and then you see the coffin in front of the table and it's just brilliant. And then when the um is it the nurse then she goes and just lifts his um sheet and just yeah. It's very funny. Cause, very, very funny. Yes, because he is the he is the most uh well equipped well dentist. Because yeah. they were well they were they were yeah, they were they were actually queuing to see him shower right yeah because you, you, you yeah you see that and then like there's a shot of boone walking away and one of the the army guys says to boone oh you know get a load of that or something and boone's face goes from a smile to oh my god what the fuck have i just seen and it's this <laughs> moment split second thing and it's just it's just great and it cuts perfectly yeah i love that later on when the nurse leaves and she's in the helicopter and just it's, she's the camera pans to her face and she's like serious and the and she just grins this mischievous grin it's just brilliant brilliant it was very very funny and I understand most of the dialogue was quite um, improvised sort of I can get into that in a minute I can get into that in a bit Um, but it was just it just felt very natural and very very um, the chemistry between um, Elliot Gould and um, Donald Sutherland was brilliant um yeah, uh, I think the actors were, yeah, very good, and there was lots of them. And there was, I understand, I understand this Altman idea of sort of overimposing dialogue from different, like four people talking at the same time, and that's kind of his trademark, um, which is quite chaotic, but it's quite fascinating at the same time. Um, I don't know, it, it was it was very Pythonesque at times. I felt like the absurdity of it, which is you know, laughing at the absurdity of, of war. And, yeah, it was just quite an, quite an enjoyable experience. It's funny that you said you, you hadn't seen Elliot Gold kind of do this role before, and, and that I thought the same thing, and I still do, um, about Robert Duvall. Um, you know, this is this is Tom <laughs> Hagen. Yes, like, <laughs> yes. You know, like... Yeah. I d- y- his he was very deadpan Frank and i Burns loved him for it yeah i loved yeah. him so deadpan um yeah yeah i mean I, I think the film the film really kicks off um really with the stealing of the jeep 
Um, and then with Radar and um, the the guy that leads, what's his name? Um, uh, the guy that runs uh, Major, uh, what's his name? Henry, Henry Blake. When he's, you know, he's he's talking to Radar and Radar is saying the things before he says it. Yes, um, yeah, it's like it's, change, change it's, the number plates. Yes, and it's that happens all the way through the film, and and then there's the other guy that's always like he's behind because it's already been given a radar. Um, the, the 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 I yeah, I I first saw the film back in 2012. Um, I I I still haven't and um seen an episode of the series. Um, my mum has, and she she raves on about it, says I should, but you know that that series famously ran on longer than the actual war itself. Um, I th- I think I've seen a couple of episodes with Alan Alda, uh, but you gonna... when I was a very young girl, and I don't I don't think I've knew what it was about, and I didn't understand the humor because it was it went over my head. <laughs> yeah. Um. Are you? Is that all? Is that are you? Kind of. Yeah, I think I'm kind. Yeah. Um. I. Yeah. Thank you. I was just. Yeah. It was very funny. Excellent. Because I, I, you know, reveal behind the, the the curtain a bit. You know, I, I did ask Danny if I could change the uh, Twitter header to the Last Supper, and I got "If you must," um, <laughs> which had me, which had me very worried because usually when I get that from Danny, it's usually when I'm talking about Michael Bay. Um, <laughs> so... I just wanted to worry you a little bit because I've, I I really liked it, and when you sent me that screenshot of the Last Supper, I laughed for a few minutes before I sent you the message. um so yeah uh i've i've actually i've got some books here because uh before i started get really into you know modern blockbusters and stuff obviously like i my thing was spielberg and spielberg's career and his kind of involvement in the new hollywood in the 1970s um so i have i have a couple of books i've got um peter biskin's easy rider raging bulls which is debatable in its historical accuracy, but still there's some good snippets in there. Um, and I've got Mark Cousins' um, story of film juggernaut thing, um, which if you haven't read and haven't seen the series, I thoroughly recommend it. Um, so I'm, I'm, in a minute, I'm going to read, uh, read a couple of quotes from them because they kind of perfectly encapsulate the film better than I ever could. Um, Robert Holtman was the 18th choice for director, apparently. 18th. Um, 18th. Yes. Yeah. Um, Altman didn't want movie stars because um, he kind of wanted the ensemble to kind of dominate, which, you know, in other words, means he wants the director to be the star of the film. Edit Gold, Donald Sutherland, and Robert Duvall have all kind of been in films before, but most of the cast didn't have on screen experience. Um, they lived, uh, they lived about on location in tents about 20 miles away from the studio and kind of encouraged to improvise. However, um, this has kind of been disputed because the screenplay by Ring Lardner Jr. Um, Ring Lardner Jr. was one of the screenwriters that was blacklisted by Hollywood, um, in fact, and, uh, a lot kind of, um, Robert Altman is kind of gone on record and said that he let the actors improvise and I, th- I can't remember who was it kind of took him to one side and was like you need to stop saying that because a lot of the hard work was done by Ring Lardner Jr. Um, so it's yeah it, it depends who you kind of talk to. Um, 
now the film itself was obviously very very small in terms of production and cost um and because of that and because of fox had two other war movies going on at that period they had Patton and torah 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 um the film was kind of just left alone um and you can kind of see that in in the fact that the film is unlike anything else any other war film that you'd seen up until that point um a first cut of the the original cut of the film um had very very few loudspeaker announcements also um not a single reference was made to the fact that they were talking about korea as well um mm. so you know the the, allog- the the fact that this film could quite easily be about vietnam as well was you know a lot a lot more obvious and that obviously made the studio uh, quite nervous um so they they encouraged you know loudspeaker announcements um uh one of them in fact um so ba- basically what happened was uh the kind of the editor kind of got a second unit's crew and kind of filmed some shots of speakers and uh, on the same night that those scenes were shot um neil armstrong landed on the moon uh it's good that's a nice little, in, in, little info um also the 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 in the the announcement of no um pictures of naked women um was actually given to robert altman in his editing studio um by by the studio because they came into his into his editing thing and were like why are you in the editing room and he was like it's my movie i can do what i damn well want and um, and they 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 saw the naked pictures and they weren't too happy about it. And then there was a communique <laughs> went round saying no more naked pictures of women. So Robert Altman put it in the movie. <laughs> That's a good story. <laughs> yeah. Um. Yeah. So I'm just trying to get this little bit from. Uh, where was it? It was also the first major studio movie to say the word fuck. Um, you know, that kind of word had always been in underground films. This is the first time it featured in a, in a major Hollywood studio film. Um, if you hear it, it's it's kind of it's it's spoken earlier on in the film in the, in the sur- in one of the surgical scenes but it's really really drowned out but you do hear it very clearly in the American football scene at the end where you hear one of the characters say I'm going to take your fucking head off and then he <laughs> he gets flattened um what did you think of that American football scene by the way um i was bored with it to be fair I was kind of expecting them to win the bet and make money. Uh, so I was just kind of let's get it over with. I was kind of kept looking at the score and like, why hasn't it was kind of, it felt like real life, the real time score, you know, cause sometimes in you, you watch scenes of um, football uh, scenes, they don't show every point scored. They just yeah. so, sometimes so, so show the um, scorecard and they're like, Oh yeah, there's 15 to seven or whatever. But here it's just like it was real time, and it was just like okay, just get it over with. I'm... I mean, I, I, in my first, in my first viewing, I was kind of like, oh, it's just an American football scene. But in my subsequent viewings, I really kind of hit hard on how it is, uh, like it's just a metaphor for the battlefield in oh. in what where two sides of men are just at the behest of two people in charge are charging into each other they're dropping like flies you see images of men being carried off by stretcher 
and it's all done in this comedic tone and and for me that's just it's just a way of showing a battle scene yeah in the film i was i was laughing i think i was laughing and sort of marveling at how absurd it all was and uh, and then i think during one of the scenes of the football scenes there's i think i recognized i might be wrong I think I recognise the uh, theme tune from the Monty Python Flying Circus. Possibly. Um, Possibly. Like the the brass version, the brass music version of that, and I was like, "Oh, that that's quite funny," because it was quite cheerful, rapid music. Yeah. Yeah. And also, um, um, speaking of music, I do think that the theme song Suicide is Painless was later because I was I think I was yeah I think I was I heard it when I was in high school I was um covered by Marilyn Manson I'm okay. pretty sure I'm pretty sure I heard it covered by Marilyn Manson in a in a very ballad kind of way yeah yeah. Um, so, so they're going on to kind of the reception of the film. Um, this is this is this is one of the the things I'm reading from Peter Biskin's book. Um, so it says that um, they they did a test screening for it, and um, you know they they showed it after I think they did a screen. It says it did the screening of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, and then they did a screening of of this. Um, and they said, uh, we went on and during the opening operation that opens up the movie, five people walked out, then in four more minutes, another five, and then about 20 people more. I was sinking down in my seat and I had this pain in my stomach. I said to myself, Jesus Christ, I thought this picture was great. Why are they all walking out? Finally, there's the scene where they steal the Jeep and the audience loved it. Big applause, then something else, more applause. Then at a certain point, there was practically a standing ovation and the audience just went wild. Hmm. Um, and then apparently some some of the Fox executives thought Altman had packed the house with friends so there was another screaming in New York with Zanuck and others uh, recalls Altman Daryl Zanuck uh, had these other had these two young girls with him these two bimbos over from France in their 20s and he said oh you've got to cut all this and they said no this is a great picture and that is how MASH was allowed to be released the way it was hmm. um, that's according to Peter Biskind uh, Pauline Kale loved the film she was a big champion of it she uh, later became very very good friends with with robert altman um and the film uh, got five oscar nominations uh, for you know for best picture and best director it is also um robert altman's most financially successful movie that he ever did wow um so according this is more like to do with the filmmaking this is from mark cousins um in in the book uh, the story of film um he says, what is striking about MASH, his first successful film, is how detached his style was from the influence of most other filmmakers. He may have used uh, Claude Leneau-style long lenses, but this was only a start. He gave, he gave actors individual microphones, had them deliver lines randomly and talk over each other. He also allowed them to wander around the set or location while he followed them surreptitiously with those long lenses as a zoologist might follow animals roaming around a cage. Weaving all these layers together in the editing suite, the result was like being far away from events, yet Eve was dropping on them. This aesthetic of voyeuristic irony was entirely new and established Altman as the most distinctive stylist in America at the time. He further developed it in the Western setting in McCabe and Mrs. Miller and in the world of country music in Nashville. Um, 
That's from uh, Mark Cousins. Now the the lines, because um, you mentioned it about the the the, uh, the dialogue and that over overlapping. Now reports kind of suggested at the time um, it's kind of been honestly dis disputed, but um, kind of argued against. Apparently, Elliot Gold and Donald Sutherland really didn't like Robert Altman. Um, they apparently complained to Fox about him on numerous occasions and tried to get him fired um, uh, because of his way of working and that he allowed this overlapping, didn't allow actors to kind of settle into their rhythms. And this kind of, you know, didn't gel well with, with Donald Sutherland and Elliot Gold. I mean, you wouldn't know it from watching the film. Um, and... Uh, you know, Dollar the Southern obviously never worked with with uh, Olman again, but Elliot Gold did. You know, on um, Long Goodbye, Nashville, The Player, uh, California Split. Um, uh, so yeah, the you know, let's, let's kind of take that what it is. Um, again, going on to the reception, uh, Roger Ebert gave the film four out of four. Um, he said there is something about war that inspires practical jokes, and the heroes are inspired are utterly heartless. We laugh not because MASH is Sergeant Bilko for adults, but because it is so true to the unlimited sadist in all of us. There is perhaps nothing so exquisite so as achieving sweet mental revenge against someone we hate with particular dedication. It is the flat-out poker-faced hatred in MASH that makes it work. Um, if the surgeons didn't have to face the daily list of maimed and mutilated bodies, none of the rest of their lives would make any sense. But none of this philosophy comes close to the insane logic of MASH, which is achieved through a particular mar peculiar marriage of cinematography, acting, directing, and writing. The movie depends upon timing and tone to be funny. One of the reasons MASH is so funny is that it's so desperate. Um, and I think that kind of leads into what you were talking about with its treatment of women. Probably, yeah. So, there, is a, there is a sort of a very dark angle to, to all of this, of course. Yeah. Um so like which, I said, I read this film personally in, in like two thousand and twelve. Um and watching this in a post Me Too world, it is very, very uncomfortable. Yes. The I mean at the time, you know, in my early twenties watching that uh, the shower scene where the kind of the tent kind of gets pulled up was hilarious. Um now I watch it and it's um horrible. <laughs> horrible situation. That makes you wonder why was why was it hilarious because before and why it's not hilarious now. Because it's the same thing. It's it's still the same I world. Yeah, I, things... I think it's perhaps I've I may have been educated into what's actually right and wrong. You know, I have a different <laughs> attitude when I was in in my early twenties. You know, different to now, kind of thing. Um. Uh, there's a there's an article in the Guardian that came out in in January 2020 um, that says the, the headline is Mash at 50: The Robert Altman Comedy That Revels in Cruel Misogyny. The anti-war film regarded as one of the greatest comedies of all time has a problem with women. Now he does actually go on um, Noah Gittel. I'm going to link to this in the show notes. He does actually go on to you know what actually makes the film very very good. Um, you know everything that you spoke about, but he goes into detail as to um, their treatment of Nurse Houlihan. Um, yeah. where she's kind of like the comic foil and then how she's you know over revenge I think is the word like, yeah I think and the, then and I think what was... bothered me was that at the end she just you know became one another puppet another you know faceless bimbo uh, cheerleader kind of thing yeah and stupid yeah 
yeah I, I think that's I think the film just didn't know what to do with her. Yeah, I don't know. I, I was trying to film... understand why, but I, like I said at the beginning, I think it's because he doesn't understand or he's afraid of what women are and what they represent. So they will be like, let's just label them bimbos and poke fun at them because that's all the best we could do. Yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to defend Robert Altman, but I am going to say that um, the film itself is based on a book, on an existing book where a lot of the situations that happen in the film do actually happen in the book. The book also apparently is extraordinarily racist. Um, yes, I mean, hear... you have a, an Asian guy just doing nothing but getting, you know, drugged and, and making cocktails. Yeah, and that made and, me, that made me and, uncomfortable, very uncomfortable. I mean, did you, not, did, you not, did you catch the American footballer thing at the end? His name? Spirit Checker? Spear Chucker Jones, yeah. Um, yeah, which, that was, yeah. Yeah, very, very, very... I mean, Robert Altman Cringe. does throw in that... Yeah, he throws in that line saying, oh, you know, he, he he played the javelin. But again, it's, you know, it's just... At the time in 1970, it's excusable, but now it's not. Um, and, you know, that, yeah. It so, just makes me think of something. I was just... um Just sorry to interrupt. Um, It was just reading a really, really good book, um, Women vs. Hollywood by Helen O'Hara. And um, she talks a bit about like the sort of the new um, cinema of the, of the new Hollywood, like you mentioned, of the 70s, and how most women are portrayed as, you know, bimbos or prostitutes or mothers or whatever, um, very demeaning qualities. And it just, it, she's quite sort of, you know, she does a lot of research on this and she, excuses them uh, for lack of a better word um, saying that they didn't know any better because that's what the, all these women, that's what they interacted with um, and it's probably true Yeah um, i got a quote here from, from that article um, he says squint at MASH and you can see National Lampoon's Animal House which will come 8 years later look a little further into the future and there's Porky's or Revenge of the Nerds other films of which frat bros play sexual pranks on unsuspecting girls in his defence MASH has more to say than those films and there doesn't appear to be the same intention of cruelty rather it spreads its subversive sentiment in all directions women just have to just get caught in the crossfire and end up getting the brunt of the injury um and I think, I think that's that is the troubling thing about the film. The film for me is I I still do on on my letterbox rate it five stars because I do think it is it is a an astonishing work, um. But it is a film that is does have this edge to it which is uncomfortable, um. And I think it is I don't know if it's unfortunate, but it's just it's just one of those. I think it's a work that is symptomatic of its time. In its treatment of women, in particular, um, obviously the race as well isn't 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 very very good either. But uh, the women thing is the most obvious thing in the movie. Yeah, I mean, I did enjoy I enjoy the the sort of the practical not the practical but the sort of ab absurdist jokes like you know the suicide. Yeah, he, we were gonna make give him a blue pill or like a what is it? capsule no. the black the black capsule the black Does capsule it, work? it works so well for hitler and everyone yeah <laughs> i mean you know the james are funny and the laugh at frank burns is funny and he and his whole character was funny but yeah the, the, the idea of of women just being there for sex and and not being you know 
real and being poked at it was it was not great and as well as the sort of treatment of asian people yeah i mean i think i think that the character major hulahan uh, is is that she did deserve some her character in in this world in this world of the film she deserved the same kind of revenge that frank burns got however the film went that extra level i think you know frank burns got dragged away in a straitjacket which is quite funny but then they just continue go on to humili- um, yeah. humiliate her um and it could have just i don't know there was a there i mean there's a great line in it where elliot gold you know there there's he comes in, you know, after just being made, I think it's like the head of the surgeon, or surgeon general or something anyway in the camp. And he, they're very, very drunk. And he's like, oh, we want sex and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, she's there with um, Robert Duval and they're, you know, getting their food. And Elliot Gold just turns and says, I want the I want the sultry bitch with fire in her eyes. <laughs> and that, that, that line just gets me every time because it's, <laughs> it's such a it's such a great description of somebody, um, you know, um and it just kind of it's like that film could have been that if that makes any sense like you could have had more stuff that's a bit smarter like that rather than the the crudeness yeah 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 of say like you know we're just gonna find out if she's a natural blonde you know and (laughs) yeah i mean the execution was great um the jokes per se were were not really i mean I, i i laughed more at the way they were preparing for the curtain to to ra- uh, rise, than at what happened afterwards, when they were like you know sitting Did with you know the what chairs, was yeah, because uh, she went down to have a shower, so you kind of expected that something like that would happen. Uh, so you, they yeah. they like dragged the chairs and they sat yeah. down and they're like already one two three with you know, um, I mean the whole you know physicality of that scene was funnier than what came afterwards for me yeah yeah um i mean cool. the, 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 i think i think we kind of need to touch on this because it obviously it's both films do this is kind of the way it shows the effects of war on people and how it shows this different depiction i think 19 you know 1946 we had they had this kind of attitude of respectfulness and um trying to understand the army vet as it were i think that was you know an attitude back then whereas you know in in this kind of version in this world you know 1970 you know got the vietnam war going on it's like you're seeing the effects on people and how people go into denial or try to hide away from it and they're using these outlandish ways of getting away from it you know i think that's I don't know if you've got any thoughts on that. Um, I think, first of all, we have to mention that both films are a product of their times, and that is quite obvious. Although I must say that um, I think the best years of our lives age slightly better than MASH. I don't know what you feel. In terms of like interpersonal relationships and, and sort of emotional stuff, I think that film has more depth. Um, I... I think also because in 1970, there was this, I mean, I, I wasn't alive then, so I wouldn't know, but I, it just feels like you have war after war after war and America is just getting into, from one, from Korea to Vietnam, you know, that she's just getting involved in all these external wars and people are just trying to, sort of being sick of it. 
and maybe that's why they kind of like they stop taking it seriously you know they're just like i just can't deal with this anymore let's just make fun of it and especially with vietnam because that was a big deal it was a bigger deal than korea i think and it was you know every generation had their own war and it was getting to the point that it's just ridiculous every decade there's a war um whereas versus of our lives i think it was still too fresh and there was still hope for the future and i yeah. think that that's what the films portray that you know there's still there is a process to sort of re sort of reintegrate into society somewhat and there is still some respect for the, for the soldiers coming home um and their sacrifice um whereas in mash they're just like every, everyone's dead anyway everyone's gonna die next year um let's just have some fun yeah um i yeah. think that's kind of what the sort of sentiment of the both films is yeah no i i, I agree i agree i do yeah. Um, to close to close off, um, I'm just going to say this because I've seen the film three times now. Um, Sylvester Stallone is in this, and I've seen this film three times, and I still can't find him. Okay, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to keep um, an eye on it if I ever if I ever want to see it again. Yeah, I mean, I know I could just Google it, and there'll be a screenshot, but that doesn't that's not fun. But it's apparently, so Sylvester trying. Stallone is playing a soldier in this, and. I've like I said I've seen the film three times and I I can't find him wherever he is. Um, and it's not like he's a an actor that is a chameleon. No, it's Sylvester Stallone for crying out loud. <laughs> <laughs> you don't look at Sylvester Stallone and think, yeah, that guy's like you know he's like Daniel Day Lewis. He's he's able to like blend into any role. He's he's the Gary Oldman of the era, oh you my, know. Like, what, what oh, um, I was actually rewatching some something on YouTube, uh, like highlights from past. Uh, I'm a big fan of Graham Norton show, and Steve Coogan was yeah. on on Graham Norton a while back. I think he was promoting um, Dan and Ollie a few years ago, and um, they were telling him to do impressions, and he did a really really good impression of Sylvester Stallone. Like a really, really good one. Look it up because it's just really, really funny. That's so okay. So okay. yeah, he, he will not blend in. He was just quite unique in his style. Yeah, yeah. Um. Okay. So I think I think we're both done with with Mash and Best Years of Our Lives. Yes, I think we are. Oh, Altman and Wyler. What a combination. I know. Um, I'm, I'm looking forward to discussing more of, of both in the future. I want to see Three Women, um, maybe we compare it with something. Um, I, re- I really want to talk about, seen... I really want to talk about the player. So, okay. Um, the yeah, player, that one. The player is the one that I really want to talk about. Cause that's the one that's like set in Hollywood and there's lots of actors playing themselves and Tim Robbins is the lead and he's excellent. So I like Tim Robbins. So <sighs> exactly. yeah, maybe we could do so, that. Yeah. Maybe we could do that. Um, okay, cool. So what have we got on for next week? Um, so next week we're changing up as we do on this, on this, on this thing. We're doing, um, I think we're going with dealing, uh, the theme of dealing with grief and, but with the kind of some maybe gothicism about it or 1940s noir or, you know, that kind of 1940s ish, noir, you know, aesthetic, so we have got 1945's Spellbound, uh, directed by Alfred Hitchcock, 
Never um, heard of him. This is our first Hitchcock film. We've done. Is it? Yeah, we've done like over 50 episodes now, 50 ish <gasps> episodes, and this is our first Hitchcock film. Oh my god, um, what an oversight. That, that film stars Gregory Peck and Ingrid Bergman. Um, so Lovely Ingrid Bergman. This is going to be great. And because this is me, um, we <laughs> I have managed to get, get Danny to agree to pair this up with um, an animated movie called Batman Mask of the Phantasm from 1993, directed by Bruce Timm and Eric Radomski. Um, that film has voice talents such as Kevin Conroy, um, and that's it. Oh, I'm not going to actually say who the other people are because I want to keep that as a secret for when you see the film. Um... So yeah, it's it it sounds like in a, a, a an odd combination, but I think in the past we've made these odd combinations work. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Um, so I have I have also given Danny some extra homework, and I'm going to say this on the podcast, so it's on record, and she uh... has no choice. Um, but I've also given uh... her because because Mask of the Phantasm is is a very very swift seventy nine minutes. Um, I've given her the twen- uh, an episode of the animated series, Batman the Animated Series, called Heart of Ice, which, if you don't know, is about Mr. Freeze. So, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Um, n- this is before Arnold Schwarzenegger's depiction of Mr. Freeze. Oh, okay. Um, so this is an episode of Mask of the, uh, Batman the Animated Series from the early 90s. Uh, like I said, it's about 20 minutes long, but I think it, it does. It also does a very, very good job at showing the same kind of themes that we're hopefully going to end up discussing in Spellbound and Mask of the Phantasm. Um, and it's a bit of context for you as well. I shall be looking forward to it. It's on the record now. You've got to do it. Okay. <laughs> I've got yeah. I'll I'll think of something to sort of pay you back with. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I'm sure you will. Um. So, uh, Dan, with, with all that in mind, that's next week. I hope I I can't wait to look. Can't wait to do that. Um. It's good to be back, isn't it? Yes. Yes. Obviously, we've we've sort of chatted longer than we usually do. So yeah, it feels good to be back. So, um, Danny, where can we find you on the internet? You can find me on Twitter at KinoJoan and my website is KinoJoan.co.uk and I need to add some content in there because I haven't been writing in ages. Ooh. But I do have an article on The Desperate Hours which you may read and I'm not sure if it's got spoilers so you might read it. Um, yeah. Okay, so um, you can find me on Twitter at Nick Chandler. My website is superatomavision.com. Um, I do. I have mentioned in the past. I do have a YouTube channel. I am actually in the pre. I am in the preparation production stages of doing my first video essay. Um, so look out for that. Um, Next. Yeah, I'm. I'm branching off into new media. There's this. There's this thing called YouTube. I don't know what it is, but all the kids are using it. Um, so we'll, <laughs> I'll give that a go. Um, and our Twitter, our podcast Twitter is at Keenatomic. Um, follow us on there. And uh, if you've got anything to say via email, drop us an email, keenatomic at gmail.com. Uh, what do we want to know from our listeners? I mean, have you got anything? What, what have you is... missed about us? Yes. Nothing. <laughs> tell, us, tell us how much you've missed us. What would you like that, to that... hear? Yeah, what would you like to hear next? 
yeah, that's actually that's a good one. I would really like to hear listener suggestions for future episodes. I mean, we've we've got we have got the rest of the season kind of planned out. That's all mapped out and all in the bag. And obviously, you know, we will do new films as and when they come out. Um, you know, we've got obviously got the French Dispatch that is going to be spoken about on this podcast, and uh, we will do an episode on Wes Anderson. Um, Guillermo del Toro's got a new film coming out soon, so that's obviously going to happen as well. Um, so yeah, and but see, I mean, we're going to say season three. Uh, we've got a couple of films, as you've just heard, <laughs> on this podcast, <laughs> yes. on this episode. We are already planning new episodes, and um, we have actually got other ones from from in the past that we kind of have had to reschedule. So, but we need to fill out season three. So, if you've got any suggestions whatsoever, please drop us an email, and we will we will definitely uh, have a look at them. So, cool, thank you. it is a goodbye and a thank you for listening from me. And a goodbye and a thank you for listening from me. Changes, and I can take